I'm Claire Gartland, um, I'm from the University of Suffolk, which I think is still the newest university in the country. It got independence in 2015, I think. Um, I'm going to be talking about outreach practices in the UK and US, uh, with a particular focus on the work of student ambassadors. Um, the, the presentation is based on my PhD research, where I looked at um, outreach schemes running, and it was during the final years of New Labour, so under AIM Higher, um, in, and also um, some research I did in the US that looked at uh, the outreach practices of ambassadors on STEM programmes. Um, I think perhaps in honour of Chris, I'm going to be a little bit reflective about how I came to this point, uh, and uh, I think it's useful to think about this in relation to... yeah. <laughs> into how I, the lens, if you like, that I, I'm looking at this work through. I taught for 10 years, um, unlike you, I did the PGC and thought, yoo-hoo, well, not entirely. <laughs> um, but, so I taught for 10 years, but when I was on maternity leave, I did, uh, um, I, I did some work at university looking at what, I did a fellowship at university, South Bank University, um, looking at widening participation because it was a nice opportunity and I had cover so I could do it and it came up but also because I was very interested in how to support the kids I was teaching um, in progressing. I was working in South East London there was a lot of problem with kids drifting off into gangs and, and so looking at how to, how to better kind of motivate them if you like so that's what got me into it and then I got into research and evaluation into widening participation activity um, and particularly in STEM and I started working with the Royal Academy of Engineering looking at STEM outreach so I think both of those parts of like my trajectory have influenced the way that I've looked at this. And now I teach on an MA, MA programme at Suffolk. Um, obviously, I haven't got time to cover all of that in 20 minutes. So what I'm going to do is just sort of pick out some of um, the dominant discourses surrounding the work of ambassadors and their outreach activity. And briefly, if I can, consider some of um, the impacts of of those dominant discourses on their practice. So, first question, why focus on STEM student ambassador outreach activity? Now, in my mind, uh, this is an issue of social justice. Uh, student ambassadors are, if you like, the public face of universities, both here and you know, across other parts of the world. I think we need to think very carefully about their practices. What are they doing? I think there's also a moral imperative to um, provide appropriate and informed advice for young people and a genuine understanding of progression routes and subject pedagogies so they know what it is going to be like when they get to university. From a university's perspective as well, I think there's a strong motive for that in terms of pre preventing attrition. In terms of why STEM, there are skills shortages in these subject areas. And I, I've, I've been working with employers a lot, and there's a lot of panic about not having suitably skilled young people, especially now, obviously, we're moving out of the EU. Um, there's also, inter interestingly, from a social justice perspective, there's jobs at different entry points in STEM. So it isn't just a degree qualified job field if you like you can go in 
you know, with qualifications after GCSE. You can go in at different points. So for young people, from, particularly from disadvantaged areas, where perhaps universities doesn't seem a possible route for them or something they'd even consider, there are routes in these fields for them and they can progress into really well-paid jobs. Which brings me on to this point about the wage premium associated with STEM careers. As it stands, there's patterns of participation which are really worrying in terms of who accesses these perhaps better paid job areas. And I think that's a real issue in terms of sort of thinking about how we address who is able to access these jobs. And just to give you a sort of a couple of statistics in relation to this. In terms of engineering, only 15% of engineering undergraduates are women, only 11% of engineering workforce are women, and only 10% of female engineer, of, uh, engineering professionals are women. Um, in terms of progression onto apprentices at lower levels, there were some, um, a few years ago there were 400 women compared to 12,880 men. Um, and there's also discrepancies in terms of um, socioeconomic groups with poorer kids less likely to access these jobs and also some black and minority ethnic, um, ethnic groups not accessing these jobs. Now, Louise Archer, I don't know if you're familiar with her work and the, the work of the Aspires team that are now at the Institute of Education, but she's done, they've done some very interesting work around this and they suggest that science seems to be too constructed as too feminised for many boys and too masculine for many girls and talk about how we need to bridge the gap, if you like, between young people's everyday identities and the identities and messages conveyed by school and real science. So uh, there's a problem with these young people not seeing themselves in these jobs and careers. And my question was really, well, can um, ambassadors contribute to bridging that gap? Are these young people who are always talked about as role models able to do that? Um, I think this is all, thinking about this is also relevant, obviously, in different subject areas, such as health, which is totally female-dominated. So, in terms of the studies, I don't want to go into too much detail about the studies because I'll be here all day. But my PhD study. The data we collected over two years, um, it centred on two contrasting universities, a new university and an elite university in London, whereas the US study was just a month. I got a um, Winston Churchill Memorial Trust Travelling Fellowship and I just went there for a month. It was much more practice-focused, sort of what we could do. Um, and I, I went to four research-intensive universities across the East Coast because I'd identified them through sort of K-12 STEM outreach activity. So they, they were slightly, they were different, but I, the, my findings from the UK studies informed the focus for the US study. I developed a very interdisciplinary um, research approach for my PhD. And I, I well, one of the issues with looking at student ambassador work, obviously, is that it's very difficult to research because it can be just a couple of hours, it can be half a day, it can be a week. That is, how can you possibly claim impact? Very tricky to look at that, and and usually it's kind of looked at alongside a whole program rather than separately from a program. 
So I developed a, an approach using sort of Foucauldian discourse analysis alongside a grounded theory so I could systematically look at how um, ambassadors talked about their own work and were talked about in different contexts, which I found quite helpful. Now, I wasn't able to replicate that in the US because I couldn't get access to students because, you know, emailing people I didn't know in different universities and say, can I come and also can we go through a complex ethics process <laughs> was a little bit too, too much. So I could only access ambassadors and project organisers and academics in the US. Um, and also, due to time constraints, I didn't have time to do a detailed discourse analysis anyway, so I used more of a grounded approach with that study. Um, but I can talk more about um, theoretical underpinnings if anyone's interested in that later, but I won't go into too much detail here. So, as I said, one of the key ways in which ambassadors discuss as being role models for young people and there's this assumption because they're close in age and life stage that they are role models and my questions are really are they role models is that the case um, is it an automatic process if you get a young person if you stick them in any context do they become role models for other young people is that really your experience of when you when you come across other young people um, and so what do they actually contribute if anything, uh, um, and, and can they bridge that gap for young people in terms of STEM? I found in both countries, stakeholders were a very powerful driver for activity and influence over the, what took place. And in the UK, as we've heard a lot about today, um, outreach is located in recruitment and marketing departments increasingly. Even with AIM Higher, it was located in marketing and recruitment departments. Um, you've also got the influence of schools and colleges, and schools have, in the UK, a very sharp focus due to league tables on meeting benchmarks and that impacts on what sort of outreach activity they're interested in. The, the landscape is slightly different in, in the US. Um, there are differences in funding and in the US you have these big funding bodies like the National, um, the National Science Foundation, the National Institute of Health that fund engagement we don't really have that, those big funding bodies working in that way here. Um, and there's also a much larger focus in universities on community engagement in the US, which again has a, an impact on practices, which I'll talk about later. And also in the US, you have um, these diversity units, which sometimes work in collaboration with academic departments on outreach activity, and they have a focus on young people's rights and sort of structural issues affecting their positioning in society, if you like, which again is something that we don't really have here, to my knowledge. I think I've got more experts who know more about what's happening in the UK than I do. But. So, dominant discourses. Obviously, inevitably, we have marketing. And this quote from um, one of the academics in the US I spoke to saying it's an arms race to attract customers and customers want to talk to other customers. 
and student ambassador an important aspect of our marketing strategy for high-end students. Mm. <coughs> I think that's probably familiar mm. here. Mm. Um, ambassadors obviously have a clear role in marketing institutions, but often ambassadors use in marketing and widening participation. So as an ambassador, do you distinguish between when you're marketing and when you're doing widening participation activity? Frankly, no, they probably don't. And that was my findings very much that they, that they didn't really. And sometimes I didn't even know which activity was which. Um, and if you like, if you're told you're a role model as an ambassador, how do you enact role model? You end up marketing your own course, your own institution, your own success story. So you're still marketing. So an issue really with um, winding participation ambassador outreach work is that they're often working with particular groups who are matched to their institution and consolidating rather than, uh, than challenging stratifications in higher ed. Um, and I think that there's an impact, in, there's an issue in that on who they're working with and how selective that process is. Who are those target groups? What I found in the UK as well is that there's a focus on employability, particularly at new universities, or I think, although I think that's everywhere, but it's very a strong discourse in new universities. And that positions ambassadors as, if you like, marketing professionals on this one. It's like customer services. And they, they were very much taught to be sort of professional and how they conducted themselves. Um, and my, my worry is, from the data I got from young people in the UK, was that this could be quite counterproductive. Um, and this was somebody who actually was interested in doing engineering at university, but was obviously just sick to the back teeth of being surrounded <laughs> by all these enthusiastic ambassadors <laughs> telling her what a great idea it was to go to university. She's like, I know. Um, so, you know, it can, I think, be alienating even for, for some young people. Another dominant discourse that nobody will be surprised about is um, the, the, the aspiration raising. Um, I, th I like Penny Jane Burke's description of this as an individual self-improvement project. Mm -hmm. um, and obviously, the, and I think people are very aware of that here, the, how that positions young people as being in deficit, um, as being basically the wrong sort of students, and how that discourse renders social structures that constrain young people pretty invisible, um, because the way that ambassadors are talking about it is that, that anyone can do anything that they want, and we all know that that's actually not really the case. I th this one, there's no real boundaries apart from your actual expectations in your head. I come from where you came from. I came from a lower privileged background and I'm here. It inspires them. And it does, you know, in some instances, but obviously that's problematic. That there, uh, one of the, uh, the elite university I was working with in the UK, um, some young people on a medical programme were sort of talking about their own success stories and that was an example of that. Um, and they, they, they worked on this for this medical access programme which was great and it allowed young people without as good qualifications to get into medicine. 
but it allowed a very small number of young people to get onto those programmes. And so they're going into schools, encouraging all these young people, yes, you can do it. And frankly, it would be very, very difficult for them to do it. Uh, I, I read a piece years ago um, by um, somebody called Del... I can never pronounce the name, Delgado or something, I think it's called, talking about how he was, as a, as a black lawyer, kind of transported around New York, I think it was, to tell young people how they could all become lawyers. And he said, they, statistically, they're more likely to become pro basketball players. So I, he actually thought, I'm not going to do this anymore. And I think he has a point, really, with what, what are we telling young people that they can do? Are we telling them the truth about what they can do? Uh, and there's a danger, obviously, that they ascribe their failure to their own shortcomings rather than the, the social structures that actually constrain them. Now, the issue of targeting, I think, is a really important one. And universities have to select who they work with. And there's, in a lot of um, funded outreach work, there are quite strict criteria on who they're allowed to work with. But I think this quote from Louise Archer kind of highlights an issue here. She says... Schools are particularly important, and career services are particularly important for disadvantaged children, and they can potentially provide a fairer distribution of culture and social capital, and opportunities for supporting, developing, and forming children's interests. Now, a lot of our outreach activity focuses on a select few students, um, and in STEM, if you focus, especially say elite universities, there's a driver to recruit and focus on students that are likely to get in. Are you just reinforcing a perception amongst young people that STEM is just for the brainy few and not for somebody like me? Um, now, in the U US, I work with some universities who are purposely working with whole school groups, but that presents its own challenges, um, and particularly challenges in terms of proof of impact, which is what you were talking about. I think as well, as well in the UK that there's this this need to prove impact and that actually reinforces approaches working with a small group because you're more likely to be able to prove impact if you work with a small group of higher achieving students than you are working with a whole load of kids who have no interest whatsoever in STEM are very unlikely to do it. There's not many drivers to make you want to do that as an institution and yet that is exactly what needs to be done and that's, that's a difficult tension I think. So that's one issue. Another issue is um, whether you match the backgrounds of ambassadors and school students or college students. And on the whole, this was happening. And I think there was some strong evidence from, from the students' accounts that this was valued by young people. And they, it was quite effective at challenging their perceptions of who does what. I was quite surprised at this, you know, that the girls were surprised to see a female engineer and saying, well, are you sure you're in the right room? Um, this was from um, a small group of um, students on a at a STEM club in the, in the US. And they were Mexican background, talking to Mexican kids, and it was very clear that those shared identities were really significant in those relationships that they were able to develop. Um, this was from a ambassador working with science, he said, 
Hello Science, welcome to my clothes, because the students always wanted to talk about what she was wearing, uh, and, and which I think suggests how important those conversations actually are, those sort of incidental discussions, and that brings me on to really the importance of the learning context within which these young people were placed. You know, how, how are they positioned in different learning contexts, and what is the impact of that on their practices? So... To bring it back to pedagogy, I am from a teaching background, so that's probably why I have this focus. But pedagogy, I think, is very, very important. And I think the type of learning context within which young people were and ambassadors were placed really impacted on the relationships that they were able to build with each other. Um, I used... Holly Hodkinson and McClure's idea about attributes of informality. I don't know if anyone's come across that, but they did a big review of um, informal learning and came up with the attributes of informality and attributes of formality in, in different contexts, which I found really helpful. Um, and they look at it in terms of process, location and setting, purposes and content. I haven't got time to go into this in any detail here, really, but obviously if you... There's quite a lot of research to suggest that location is important. Actually, taking people to university settings is quite powerful. Um, but as I say, that has implications for who you're working with. Again, we get to that, well, we're just working with a select few. And who schools choose to send on those. Uh, I had one teacher saying, well, I would never send my bad boys out. You know, so, so the bad boys are trapped. They're not allowed out of the building. So... Again, there's tensions there between, between who you can reach and what best practice looks like, really. Um, but I found when learning contexts had a lot of attributes of informality, like this one I've, I've scanned out here, it provided a space where young people and ambassadors could work collaboratively together as peers, if you like, and young people were able to try out STEM identity, you know, um, university identities and STEM identities in those interactive learning contexts, and that could be quite powerful at challenging their ideas and, and, and consolidating their perceptions of themselves as science scientists or engineers uh, um, and university students. And I looked at that using sort of Butler's ideas about performativity. Now, in the US, what was interesting was that there was much more focus on pedagogy than in the UK. And I think that was due, uh, if you think back to what I said about stakeholders, to the engagement of academics that doesn't happen in the same way in the UK, where there's a sharper sort of disjuncture, if you like, between the work of academics and widening participation and, and outreach practitioners. And academics were talking quite a lot about pedagogy and what pedagogy should look like in schools. And that was a conversation that was happening all the time. And we, I don't believe we have it here, really. Um, so this is, one, whoops, this is one academic talking about... Sorry, I've jumped. Um, it's important for young people to understand what engineering looks like at university. And um, the National Academy of Engineering actually 
had scoped out what engineering in schools should look like and that was recognisable of what engineering looked like at university. Now those conversations simply aren't happening, I don't believe, in this country. Um, they were talking about, ambassadors were talking about following the scientific method. And then you had um, the Engineering Ambassadors Network where they, they were talking about best practice in pedagogy of outreach activity and you know how you do presentations and how you best relate to young people. And that was happening at a national level. Again, we, we don't do that. And then you had um, this interest in science communication, which was linked to the public engagement agenda of reaching out to, young, to, to communities and explaining science and how you do that best. Again, all focused on pedagogical practices, which is a conversation that's largely absent here, I think. And then there was another discourse around community engagement and this sort of sense of you've got to give back. People were always talking about giving back um, in the States. And I think the public engagement movement's been going on for a number of years in the States and it's a desire to address social, economic and environmental issues facing communities. You've also got this big gap between private, one of the universities I went to was a private university located in the city and obviously the students who go to that university aren't the students from those communities mm. so they have to justify their existence so there's a, a real emphasis on engaging, every building had to have a space that engage, engage with the community and this was one of the spaces they had a museum um, where students displayed their work, this was one of the students pieces of work and the students work with communities, work with young people in those spaces, there were open access spaces and because those spaces weren't driven by funding agendas they were very creative spaces uh, and they could, they were very creative around the pedagogies that they used. But again there's an issue of who accesses that, you know, who, goes, who, who goes through that open door and it tends to be the wealthier, more you know, elite schools and um, international groups of students that actually were going through that open door. So, conclusions. Very briefly, um, I believe that ambassador outreach activity does have the potential to disrupt gendered race and class subject identities and interrupt dominant identity patterns of disidentification, but, and there's lots of buts to that, um, Ambassadors are currently positioned as marketers and school students as consumers, which is in many instances quite problematic. There's a tendency in those discourses to individualise success and problematise young people as lacking appropriate ambition. We're ignoring structural obstacles in those accounts that young people, are, that ambassadors are providing. We're targeting small numbers, often of high-achieving students, and neglecting the students we desperately need to reach if we're actually going to change patterns of participation. And ambassadors can actually support existing stratification rather than challenge that. And there's no focus on pedagogy in the UK, mm. as it stands. Mm. Um, and, and those dominant discourses don't bring in academics. Um, the funding streams don't bring in academics. And so those conversations about teaching and learning across sectors aren't happening in the UK as, as, as it stands. Mm. I think that's okay.
All our fits. So.